Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history and the 2023 winner of an award of merit for excellence from the Connecticut League of History Organizations. Brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. This is our first new episode for 2024, and we've got some big news. Thanks to you, our listeners, we had 30,106 downloads in 2023. That's our best year ever. We have brand new Facebook and Instagram pages under Grading the Nutmeg. Please follow us and you'll get behind the scenes photos, sneak peeks of new content, and info on how to purchase our new merchandise. In today's episode, we'll be discussing one of the most well-known sons of Connecticut, and one I really find the most perplexing. I have to admit that one of the reasons for this episode is for me to try to unravel his backstory. What was he thinking? My guest today is Jack Kelly, historian and author of the new book, God Save Benedict Arnold, the true story of America's most hated man. Kelly believes a reevaluation of Arnold's career with his string of heroic achievements as well as his betrayal of the American patriot cause is needed. In Connecticut, Benedict pivots from being the admired hero of the Battle of Richfield on the American side to being the commander of the British troops that burned New London and massacred American militiamen at Fort Griswold. How could this happen? Jack Kelly is an award-winning historian and novelist. His books about the American Revolution and early America include Band of Giants and Valcor. Kirkus Reviews describes his latest book, God Save Benedict Arnold, The True Story of America's Most Hated Man, as a dazzling addition to the history of the American Revolution. Jack has received the DAR History Medal. He is a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellow in Nonfiction Literature. Mr. Kelly will be presenting a Zoom presentation on his new book for the New Haven Museum on Thursday, January 25th, 2024, at 6.30. Register on their webpage. The free event will also stream on Facebook Live. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Mary. It's uh, great to be with you. You know, this is such a sweeping story. It really seems like a movie plot to me. You're very interested in Benedict Arnold and his just remarkable achievements, as well as his bitter disappointments. But how did his life start in Connecticut in Norwich? Well, his family was actually an old American family from Rhode Island. His, I think, great-great-grandfather was the second governor of Rhode Island and quite a wealthy man. The family was very established in Rhode Island, but like many families at the time, as time went by, the, the family fortunes sort of dissipated. And his father ended up looking for new opportunities. And he, he really, he's, I think he started out as a uh, an apprentice to a cooper that was a barrel maker. And he moved to Norwich, uh, which was essentially just across the border from Rhode Island, and became successful there. Uh, his, his, the family fortunes revived, and he married well. He started in a trading business. He had his own ships. When Benedict Arnold was young, he used to go with his father down to the West Indies to trade. And they were a successful family in Norwich on both sides, both his mother and father's sides. And uh, that's where he grew up, and everything was looking very rosy for him up through his uh, early teenage years. And what happened then? For reasons that are hard to 
pinned down now. Uh, his father, uh, it was a time when many people were heavy drinkers, and his father was a heavy drinker to begin with, and became an alcoholic to the point where th he let his business slide. And the family fortunes took a very um, bad reversal. And Benedict Arnold, who had been off with a tutor preparing to go to to Yale and university in a life of a gentleman, had to leave school. Uh, he came back. His father was, at that point, the town drunk. Uh, of course, it was Norwich was a pretty small town then. He had to go to work as an apprentice, which was a very big step down, you know, from being a, a gentleman to an apprentice where you really have to sign off your life for seven years to learn a business. He was fortunate in that his mother was related to a family uh, that was in, also in the tr trading business, and mostly uh, they were traded in uh, luxury goods. Uh, Benedict Arnold joined them, and they were more traders. They, they ran a store, and Benedict Arnold, when he had lived through his apprenticeship, got started in business on his own. He, he's often referred to as an apothecary, but I think that gives a a mistaken picture of him. It was not like he was running a drugstore. He an apothecary in those days was was not a drugstore, but was a um a dealer in luxury goods. They they did sell medicine, but they sold uh, perfumes and books and so forth. And uh, Benedict Arnold, once he had lived through his apprenticeship, uh, the the family that was um that he had been apprenticed to helped him get started in his own apothecary shop in uh, New Haven. He, like them, expanded into a international trading business. He traded in all kinds of commodities up to Canada and down to the West Indies. And he was very successful at it. So I know moving from Norwich to New Haven, New Haven would have been a really bustling kind of port city or harbor city and probably was larger. So that was probably a smart business move. How did his personal life go in New Haven? He was, um, and I should point out that Norwich was also considered a port city. It was a little ways up the, the Thames River. Uh, of course, New London was a big port, and New Haven, as you point out, was a it was a port city. So Arnold was very much involved in the waterfront and ships and nautical aspects of trading. Uh, he married quite well down there. He uh, had three children, uh, three sons by the time the revolution came along and was doing very well. And was like many of the people that, though that were associated with trade and with the waterfront, he was impacted by the British impositions on the colonies. He, he the, the taxes, the, the duties, the restrictions on trade. And he did a lot of smuggling as almost all the traders had to do at that time. And that gave him this impetus, I think, to get involved in the revolution and get, be actively uh, opposed to the British rule in America and uh, gave sort of his enthusiasm for the revolution. That's interesting because clearly he shifts from being a businessman to being a military officer. How does that happen? Well, the, the uh, news about uh, Lexington and Concord arrived in New Haven just a, two days after the battle took place, Arnold had been involved with a kind of a gentleman's militia company. It was, a, it was not part of the regular state militia. It was more of a 
partly a, a fraternal organization of well-to-do men, and they like to go out and drill and train in military maneuvers. They hired a, a deserter from the British Army to train them, but had they, none of them had much training. And uh, when the news arrived, Arnold immediately said the company is going to march up to Cambridge, where the, the Patriots were besieging the British in Boston, and uh, we're going to war. And um, that set off a very well-known confrontation, which he had with the uh, sort of the city fathers of New Haven. They didn't want to give him the muskets and gunpowder that he needed to, to march up there and participate in the war. And he threatened that they would, if they didn't give it to him, they would break into the, the city's powder house and take them. And uh, eventually they did hand over the keys and they armed themselves and marched up to Cambridge. That incident has been commemorated pretty much every year since, uh, and it's still commemoration in April. I think it's April 22nd. Uh, they have Powder House Day in New Haven. So he marches up to the uh, Boston area for the beginning of the revolution. Then how does he decide that instead of going back to business full time, he's going to join the effort to become part of Washington's army? Well, he when he arrived in Boston, he met Joseph Warren, who was somebody that was at the forefront of the radical push for the Revolutionary War and a break with uh, Britain. And he and Warren were same age. They had similar backgrounds, and they really had a meeting of the minds. And it was Joseph Warren that sent Arnold off on a new trajectory as a colonel in the Massachusetts militia and out to Western Massachusetts to raise a regiment and take over Fort Ticonderoga. And that all happened within two days of him arriving in, in uh, Cambridge. So uh, things were happening very fast, and both Arnold and Warren were really on the cutting edge of the impetus to, to confront the British and to, to continue the war at a time when many people were uh, thinking more in terms of reconciliation, how are we going to how are we going to resolve the conflicts we have with Britain and get back to the way things had been? And so they were um, uh, the, these the radicals were were much more not talking about independence yet, but still heading in that direction. I'd say it always fascinates me about him that somehow that those parts of his personality which now we would say, oh, you know, high risk type of individual, somebody who's either going to be a you know, billionaire CEO or a underworld mafia don or some, somebody in charge. Mm -hmm. That high risk capability he had as part of his personality just leads to him being, I, you know, you could say daring or you could say somebody who took big risks, or somebody who doesn't really think about his own safety. What other things would you attribute to his personality that really unfold when he becomes a military officer? Well, I think that you're very correct to, to point that out, that he was definitely a man of action. He, he was not introspective. He was not certainly not an intellectual in any sense. I think as a hard, he's a hard person to understand for people who come at it from the sort of intellectual uh, angle that uh, what was what were his ideas? He didn't have ideas. He just acted. As far as the military goes, one of the most extraordinary things about Arnold is that he was a uh, genius 
of strategy and tactics in the military, even though he had virtually no military training. The, the little bit of training he did with the militia was really inconsequential. And he just seemed to be a natural at it. And I think partly you could say, well, he was a natural, whatever that means. He was a natural fighter. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he had been a sea captain. And unlike some traders who would send cargo off to the West Indies and uh, have a representative down there to sell it, he was the captain of some of his ships. He would go down there. He would go up to Canada. He was very active as a sea captain. And many of the same qualities that a sea captain needed, a sense of command, attention to detail, looking ahead, planning, and really and really lording it over the crew, uh, was necessary in the military and, and served him very well in the military. So I think that in part explains or gives, you know, you know, suggests the, the ways in which Arnold was preparing for the military, even though he was not getting a military training. He is such an active person and he is, has valor and courage and, as you say, somehow figures out these strategies. How did he jump into the fray when Danbury was invaded by the British? He had already been in, that was uh, happened in the spring of 1777. He'd already been through two campaigns at that point, uh, the first in 1775 up in Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, and then in 1776, again, had defended Fort Ticonderoga uh, in a naval battle on Lake Champlain. So he was very accomplished. He was a celebrity general at that point. He was probably as well known as Washington. And he'd come home on leave to New Haven. And he had expected to be promoted, and he didn't get promoted, which he was uh, somewhat disgruntled about. But while he was there, word arrived that Connecticut had been invaded. Up to that point, Connecticut had not been involved uh, in much of the fighting, or the, very little of the fighting had taken place in Connecticut. And that the, the British had landed near Norwalk and were on the march towards Danbury. And Danbury was a major supply depot not only for Connecticut, but also for the forces over on the Hudson River. And the Patriots had placed it there, thinking that it was far enough inland that the, it would be safe from the British. And in fact, um, the British mounted an attack with 1,500 men, um, both crack British troops and loyalists, and they marched up to Danbury, and the local militia had no ability to stop them. They were far outnumbered. They got to Danbury and essentially burnt the whole town. The, the, there were no wagons. All the people had got, put their own possessions and um, household goods in wagons and left town. So they had no alternative but to burn everything. And they burned everything. There were huge amounts of food and shoes and weapons and tents. And then they, by this point, Arnold had gathered a small group of militiamen along with uh, General David Wooster, who was the head of the overall commander of the Connecticut militia. And the two of them had come down from New Haven and had followed the British up to Danbury. When the British heard about the, that the, these militia were in their, on their trail, let's say, uh, they decided rather than go back the way they'd come, which was straight from the coast, they would sort of circle around to the west and go through the town of Ridgefield. And uh, that's where uh, Benedict Arnold and Wooster decided to 
split their force, Wooster would follow the British and harass them from behind, and Arnold would cut across and set up a, a roadblock at uh, Ridgefield. And that was what resulted in the Battle at Ridgefield, which uh, is not a, it's not uh, highlighted usually in the histories of the war, but it was actually quite an important battle and the whole uh, opposition to the, uh, the British raid at Danbury was, uh, was quite important in discouraging the British from doing that again. They essentially uh, protected the American supply lines. We did an episode that our listeners can find on the Keeler Tavern in Ridgefield which still has a, I think it's a cannonball embedded in the outside of the Clabbered house that's yep. now a museum in Ridgefield. But tell us a little bit about, I understand that Arnold had to ride his horse 30 miles through the rain to get from New Haven to the Danbury area to meet the other horses, other patriots. And that in and of itself sounds like a, a rough ride. These These towns are not that close together. So landing in on the shore in Connecticut and going up to Danbury, I'm not sure how many miles that is, but it it's a trek. And then it's a trek back to Westport to meet your ship to depart. What was his plan for that Ridgefield entrapment? They had gathered as many militiamen as they could, and they were very much like a pickup force of militiamen. The Ridgefield uh, town militia had been formed only a few days earlier. So they were uh, guys that just signed up for the militia. They hadn't even had time to drill yet. And here they were being ordered to take a stand against experienced British troops under the command of a celebrity general, because everybody knew Benedict Arnold. So they uh, waited there. They heard the firing from a distance, which was General Wooster harassing the British. In one of those clashes, uh, Wooster was killed by a... A firing uh, that the British had, and the British had several cannon with them as well. The British arrived. I like to imagine, like the, just the sound of the British approaching, because they they had drums, they had a, a band playing, and you can imagine that sense of excitement that comes when you hear the parade coming on Fourth of July or Memorial Day parade is coming down. You can hear it in the distance; it's coming. Only this, in this case. They're coming to kill you. So it was a very fraught time. And it was time when leadership and uh, confidence that Arnold was able to instill in these men uh, was very important because they did stand against the British. They exchanged volleys with them. The British had more, a lot more men. They started to go around both sides of the barricade. And Arnold then had to pull back. His horse was shot out from under him in the story that was handed down a british soldier ran over with a bayonet and and took him captive and he said you're my prisoner and arnold was able to pull his pistol out of his saddle and uh he said not yet and shot the man dead so they did pull back the british uh, spent the night in ridgefield and then continued down back it was about 25 miles uh, inland that they had marched in order to get to Danbury and they they were marching back to get on their ships and um, Arnold set up another block down closer to to Norwalk and there was more fighting the British endured so many casualties that it really gave them second thoughts about ever trying that again 
and uh, it was uh, considered at the time to be a great victory and a great uh, feather in the cap of Benedict Arnold to the point where John Adams said uh, that the Congress should strike a gold medal and give it to him. Later, after Arnold became a traitor, uh, the Battle of Ridgefield was very much reduced in the, the memory of history, uh, but at the time it was a very important battle. I'll be right back with my guests after this message. Hey fellow students, with classes soon approaching, I know how valuable reliable sources are for research projects and papers. That's why Connecticut Explored Magazine is my go-to for compelling stories about Connecticut history, exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. If you're a history lover or student like me, I know you'll appreciate this magazine. Visit ctexplore.org slash subscribe to purchase your discounted student subscription today for only $20 a year. From New Haven's world-renowned pizza to Connecticut's connection to the Bauhaus and uncovering the suffrage work of African-American women in Connecticut, listen to all 10 of Grading the Nutmeg's most streamed episodes now. We've been podcasting for nine years. That's nearly 200 episodes of sharing Connecticut's big stories. To celebrate, tune in to our top streamed episodes of all time and then explore the rest. All you need to do is visit ctexplore.org listen. Click listen here and look for our post of the top 10 most streamed episodes for your next good story, or 10. I think now we're at that point in the story where your considerable thought and research about what motivated him to change sides. Because clearly, if you're willing to be wounded in action, which he was in, a, in, his le- in one of his legs, and continue to fight, and to be willing to do things like drop everything and ride 30 miles in the rain and pick up the command of a whole unit with the with the Danbury and Ridgefield battle, he seems like he's all in, that he will not be swayed about the his commitment to the American side of the battle. What do you think ha- happened that changed his mind? Well, that is the great question, and it's been debated by historians uh, ever since, really. There's no question, as you said, the, the, the his commitment to the revolution was total it certainly is uh, he was as committed to the revolution as anybody who fought in it early in the for, for the first 3 years of the war he risked his life over and over again he endured terrible hardships he uh deserted his business uh, he left his sister and uh, wife and sister to run his business for him and it cost him a lot of uh profits that he could have been making so everything about him was committed to the revolution After the Battle of Saratoga, where he was severely wounded, again, a great achievement that he stopped the British at Saratoga and their march down from Canada, he started thinking. And what exactly he was thinking is very hard to pin down. Some historians have said it was the money. That was the big factor. The British were going to pay him to change sides. Some said that his wife, his first wife had died during the during the war, and he'd married a, a young woman who was a loyalist-leaning, let's say, young lady from Philadelphia who influenced him. She was involved in the plot when he went over to the British, but whether she made the decision for him is very hard to, to pin down. Some said it was because he didn't like the French alliance that he'd grown up hating the French. And when the Americans made an alliance with France, he he didn't go along with that. 
he himself wavered. He gave different, very unconvincing reasons after he did switch sides. But none of those reasons, from what I can see, explained it. Uh, it's hard to imagine any reason that could have changed him so radically from being such a committed and enthusiastic supporter of the revolution to actually helping the British win the war. I sometimes wonder if he thought, if he knew himself why he did it. You know, he was not, a like I was saying before, he was not an introspective man. He didn't think about his thinking. He he just did things. And I think he had the impulse to switch sides. In the book, I talk a little bit about some of the factors. And I think, I think the two factors that are worth considering is, first of all, he was had his leg broken at Saratoga by a bullet and was in terrible pain for many, many months. It took him a long time to even be able to walk again. He was in probably in pain for the rest of his life. And he had seen a lot of trauma in the war. And we're a little bit more aware now of the effect of trauma on people's minds. Was that a factor? We don't really know. And the other thing is that he was, as a man of action, being at the center of things was very important to him. And once he was disabled in, in, by his injury, one way of getting back to being at the center of things was to put himself in the middle of this plot and to um, risk his life again, because he was risking his life by uh, conspiring with the British. Was that a reason or was that a um, factor that sort of made him think it was okay to do it? I don't know. And that's really, when it comes down to it, that would be my answer as to why he switched sides is, I simply don't know. It's such a big question. Now, he was promised, I think, 20,000 pounds if he could deliver West Point, which is up on the Hudson River there, uh, now where the military academy is, to the British. It was held by the Americans. It was such a pivotal waterway. It was such an important fortification. Just tell us a little bit about how that Lot fell apart on him. Well, it was really one of the uh, the great dramas of uh, the Revolutionary Wars that he'd met with um, Major John Andre, who was the head of British intelligence on the west side of the Hudson River. They made the plans. He gave Major Andre a map of West Point, and then Arnold went back to his house, which was opposite on the opposite side of West Point, and Andre was riding down through Westchester County to go back to the British and set the plot in motion. And he was stopped by some militiamen. And at the time, he didn't know if they were loyalists or patriots. And so he made the mistake of saying, I hope you're on our side. And they said, well, what side is that? And uh, he, then he had a guess. So he, he said, uh, the lower party, which was the British, and um, they said, no, we're Americans. And they searched him. They found the maps. They sent everything on to George Washington. But their commanding officer uh, had notified Benedict Arnold, who was his commanding officer. So there was a um, a little gap between the time that Arnold heard that the plot had fallen apart until Washington got the news and... Um, he used that time to escape, and he went down the Hudson River to the British, was made a brigadier general in the British Army, and fought for the British uh, for about a year afterwards. That brings us, now that he's on the British side, 
to the other big event in Connecticut, which is the burning of New London and the Battle of Groton Heights. So now he's a British general, and he's la- he's landing on Connecticut shores. Tell us about that. Well, it's, he'd, he'd fought briefly in Virginia, and then the British sent him to New London. Whether he uh, advised that or not, I don't know. It seems almost like an Oedipal complex that he went back to his hometown and burned it down. But he went up with a raiding party up in British on ships and uh, landed. There was very little resistance there. Most of uh, or much of the city was burned down as they tried to destroy uh, Patriot supplies. Another force uh, under Arnold's command went over to Fort Griswold and on the other side of the Thames River and easily took the fort. They had overwhelmed the, the defenders there, but afterwards massacred a number of the men who had surrendered. So that was not certainly not ordered by Benedict Arnold, but it was under his command. So uh, the whole the whole um, event, which was actually the last big event in the war in the North before Yorktown, and uh, it was a uh, it certainly hardened the feeling of the Americans towards Benedict Arnold. If they weren't if they weren't in opposition enough, they they were given this uh, sign of uh, his treason by burning his own hometown. Oh, absolutely. And it was such a grisly, uncalled for massacre at uh, on the Fort Griswold side. What was his life like after the American Revolution? I was always surprised that somehow it, it turned out it didn't it, it may maybe it didn't turn out to be the life he envisioned, but he certainly went to London after the war. What did his life look like after the war? Well, he, he and his wife both went over to London uh, with uh, eventually his his other children. His children were given commissions in the British Army with his sons. They lived in London for a while. They lived in Canada for about six years, went back to London, and he got back into business. He pretty much re- was in the same type of business he had been in before the Revolutionary War, trading to the West Indies mostly. He was not a particularly happy person and he was what what he wanted was to get in the british military either in the navy or in the army and um there was so much opposition to that because really for two reasons one was because he was a, a nobody likes a traitor and the other was that he had killed so many british soldiers i mean he was responsible for the death of many british soldiers that the british officers didn't want to have him among their ranks so he never got a, another military assignment, and um, a lot of people in, in England looked down on him as a traitor as well. He lives until, I think, 1801, so yeah. he 15, 20 years after the American Revolution, or 15 years after the American Revolution. It always surprised me that somehow he even did as well as he did after that, but uh, something I, I always like to you know ask is how do you think that Benedict Arnold's upbringing in Connecticut might have influenced his life? I, I think really the biggest influence uh, was his mother, which, uh, I, you know, it's sort of a cliche to say that, but he saved a lot of his letters that his mother sent him when he was away at school. And she was very devout Calvinist, sort of Puritan lady. Arnold himself was not particularly religious, but he took from her that 
idea of fatalism. She would write to him when he was a boy, always be ready to die. Always remember you have to die. And I think that he 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 absorbed that and perhaps had something to do with his his courage in battle. He was, you know, he knew that life is temporary and uh, you never know what's going to happen. His mother was a great fatalist. So I think he took that with him uh, from his childhood. I know it's hard to sometimes stay motivated to complete a book once you've got a great idea. What made you want to write this book? I, I, I saw uh, Benedict Arnold. First thing is that he, he probably has more name recognition than any other soldier that fought in the Revolutionary War. And so I saw this as a kind of a, a way into the revolution because in the first three years when he was work, when he was fighting for the Americans, he was involved in almost all the major actions of the time. So if you look, just follow along step by step, we get into the revolution. I think also I was intrigued by him because he very much reflected the times. We've always thought of Benedict Arnold as a, a kind of an outlier. He was he was the traitor. He was the guy that didn't stick it out. But that feeling was very prevalent in the country as a whole. There were the country was very divided. There were many people that were loyalists. There were many patriots, and there were many people that went back and forth. And Benedict Arnold kind of embodied that uncertainty about the war and what direction to take. And I think he's more interesting. From that point of view, than just to say, well, he was a scoundrel. He, you know, he didn't deserve to be, have any recognition, which is a attitude that came from many of the early biographies. At, the country was so shocked by his treason that he was really lambasted as a traitor, even from his earliest times. So that none of his accomplishments really meant anything. Some of the biographies even said he was a nasty little boy, and he was that showed that he had been a traitor from the cradle. So those those kind of distortions of history have begun to straighten out, but I think still need to be uh, clarified that he was both a hero and an extraordinary contributor to the revolution, and without question, a, a traitor. Well, I think it's time we take a new look at Benedict Arnold, and I certainly recommend your book. To our listeners, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast, and we look forward to your presentation at the New Haven Museum. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mary. It's been a pleasure. Well, that helped me understand a lot more about Benedict Arnold. I want to thank my guest, author and historian Jack Kelly. To find out more, go to his website at jackkellybooks.com and his newsletter at jackkelly at talkingtoamerica.substack.com. His book is available on Amazon. And don't forget to register for his free presentation on Zoom, sponsored by the New Haven Museum on January 25th, 2024 at 6.30 p.m. To find out more about upcoming events at the New Haven Museum, go to newhavenmuseum.org and follow them on Facebook at the New Haven Museum. Please go to our show notes for this episode for links to more information, including articles on Benedict published in Connecticut Explored Magazine and available to read for free. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg 
on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the Donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Make a $250 donation, and we'll send you our brand new Grading the Nutmeg t-shirt. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.